Welcome back to another episode of the Rick and Danny Show. Danny, what's on your mind? Uh, the house is on my mind constantly, Rick. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about this house we're building, and it's just a lot record, of headaches. You and I aren't building it. No, no, no. I mean, we were like... If I put a good... I don't know if your wife and children would want my family in there, too. Well, you know. Join house, you know. Nothing wrong with that. I want to wake up Maybe and just sitting in the kitchen and hello. Yeah. One of those connector tunnels where, like, they're right next that to would be, other, That would be awesome. Nice. Good idea. Thank you. But otherwise, feeling good, Rick. Feeling good. We have a special guest today, Rick. Uh, we have Dr. Donovan Westerville. Correct. Yeah. From Orland Gruber Clinic. He's a new gastroenterologist. Yep. With Brand me. new. Okay. Brand new. About a <laughs> month in. Well, uh, Donovan, nice to meet you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yeah. what led you to Jacksonville? Yeah. Well, thank you all for inviting me. Um, so I'm a Florida boy. I grew up in Florida, in Orlando, and I met my wife in high school. Um, we stayed around for quite some time, and I went to medical school at the University of Florida. Go Gators. Yes, go Gators. We, my wife and myself said we're going to get out of here and experience something other than Gainesville, and I loved it so much, I ended up staying on for residency. And then I stayed on for chief year in internal medicine. So Gainesville, about eight years for medical training. But then come fellowship, we said we're really going to try to explore the country and get out of here for a little bit. So I ended up going to Manhattan, um, where I went to Cornell um, in Manhattan. And I graduated well, July, June 30th. And then oh, I made my great. way right back down to Florida. We have family in Orlando. We have kids. So we just want to be closer to home. That's great. That's great. Um how was New York compared to your, your Florida state? Right. So much different. Yeah. What Magic do you mean? I think Gainesville, Manhattan and Gainesville are like Gainesville the same thing. They're a little bit different. <laughs> Clearly don't know anything. Um, but much different. And, you know, I was surprised that the patient population that I saw was actually quite diverse, despite okay. it being in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Right. Um, I, I was exposed to a lot of diversity, which was surprising and pleasant. Um, but yes, much different. We lived in mm -hmm. a thousand square feet with two children. I don't even want to mention the rent. Oh, oh I'm sure. And yeah. it was a mortgage rent <laughs> of a very big house. No in equity. Oh, Survive that bill. tight quarters with two kids. Oh, yeah. Then... We can do anything. Yeah, exactly. The world's oyster. Couch. We had one couch, and it was just by the time we left after three years, it looked just abused. Like it's been through the war. And it was brand new when we moved, and it was just three years of sitting on it because there's no not much else you could do in that environment. But no, it, it was great. I loved fellowship. It was great training, and we're just happy to be home. Yeah. Is there anything particular interest of GI that you know you're drawn to, or is something that you were hired to do specifically, or kind of general GI? Yeah. What's yeah? So early on in medical school, um, I began, uh, I became interested in pancreatic cysts and pancreatic cancers. Um, you know, they're really quite different in terms of the approach to management and even diagnosis. Whereas pancreatic cysts are typically found incidentally on cross-sectional imaging, a patient goes to the ED with belly pain or gets a CT scan or MRI for whatever reason. And then they find this incidental cyst, and I like to survey them, manage them, do EUS FNAs on them. Um, whereas pancreatic cancer, it's just unfortunate towards the end of the stage of the cancer, the patient presents with these, you know, nonspecific symptoms of maybe some belly pain, some weight loss, some jaundice. And I just find the distinction between the two so broad. Um, I was always drawn to it. So during medical school, I began doing research in pancreatic cysts, and then I became more interested in pancreatic cancer as time went on. Um, in fellowship, the last couple of years of fellowship, my focus was actually on EUS um, biliary, pancreatic biliary pathology. So I did a lot of EUS FNAs, uh, fine needle aspirations, fine needle biopsies, 
um, help diagnose pancreatic cancers and management of cysts. And I mm. carried that on. And that's kind of my interest in GI now is just the management evaluation and diagnosis of cysts and cancers. Oh, great. Yeah. It's really cool. And now, do you have a set location where you know you're going to be at or people who are listening? Or are you bouncing through a couple locations? A little bit of bouncing. Um, but my office is in Nocte. We will be moving to Durban Creek next year. About June ish, June time, June, July. Is that where you are now? Yeah, yeah. so that the new office going up exactly. south in Long Beach. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. so I live five minutes from there, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah I live close by. Yeah. It's uh, around that area, but we go through a couple school zones, so it might still take some time to get to work. Right, um, right, right. But no, right now we're going around. I'm doing my EUS FNA, FNB in uh, Baptist South. Okay. Okay. Um, but then the other endo days for the general GI stuff is in St. Augustine. Okay. Um, St. Vincent's area. Yep. Very good. Yeah. And for our listeners who, who may may know somebody or themselves have had a diagnosis of a pancreatic cyst on, mm -hmm. on imaging, what what do you tell patients, say they get a CT scan for abdominal pain or, um, you know, it's incidentally found on an image. Right. What are the what are the steps you take? Do you decide on one, does the patient need a, a aspiration of it based on size kind of could you go right. over some of the details that you look at right absolutely so that's a great question because these cysts when a patient gets their diagnosis or when they get the reports and they weren't expecting to find a cyst in the pancreas of course it's concerning but um there are many there are four guidelines and they kind of differ in their approach of how to manage these but pretty much what they all agree Perfect. on exactly <laughs> exactly it makes it really easy the japanese guidelines and the american guidelines and european guidelines but i think what they all agree on is a cyst that's larger than a centimeter or so should be evaluated either with an MRI for surveillance or an EUS FNA. But when these cysts become larger, when they start interfering with the duct of the actual pancreas and the duct looks weird or enlarged on cross-sectional imaging, um, or if the wall of the cysts maybe contain what's called a mural nodule, it's maybe some nodularity in it. Mm. Um, at that point, I would say this person requires a fine needle aspiration. Um, there are also certain characteristics of cysts which make them more likely to progress to malignancies or cancers. Um, you know, if they're septated or they have walls within the cysts, if there's debris within the cysts, these are all reasons to go ahead and do an EUS FNA, aspirate the fluid. Um, but if you have small cysts, you know, sub-centimeter cysts, a couple millimeters in size, typically we just survey those over time with repeat imaging, an EUS, an endoscopic ultrasound or MRI. Um, so size, um, if it's involving the pancreatic duct, that's caused some dilation of the duct of the pancreas where the pa pancreatic enzymes flow. And if the cyst itself characteristically looks concerning, that, those are all indications to come and do an endoscopic ultrasound with aspiration. Is there anything specifically you look for when, let's say someone you feel like doesn't maybe need an FNA or need to go that far, but determining cross-sectional imaging like a CT or MRI versus yeah. like an MRCP, right. is there guidelines for there or is it sort of your yeah. personal gestalt about right so i look at the age of the patient if the patient's very young if they're a lady if they haven't had children yet i don't want to radiate them too much so i prefer to use mri i prefer to use mri all the time um but ct can be useful as well ct actually evaluates the pancreas quite well but mri is typically the protocol i choose because they are going to be surveyed for a long period of time and getting a ct scan every other year with that radiation may be too much the radiation doctor you don't have to tell me oh, yes, MRI, exactly. MRI is my preferred exactly. modality so exactly. I, I probably yeah. 
order that more than just about anything. Right. right. So yes, an MRCP would be the best of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's some cysts based on location in the pancreas, whether it's closer to the head of the pancreas, which is closer to the small intestine, yep. versus being closer to the mid or tail of the pancreas. Um, certain cysts you're not able to get to endoscopically. Um, you know, I haven't had that yet. So actually, I take that back. If they are closer to the unsynthetic process towards the second portion of the duodenum, uh, the actual technicality of the procedure differs because your torque, this might be outside of the scope, but you're torquing a lot and your stability to obtain an FNB or FNA of that cyst becomes more difficult technically. Mm. Um, and that might be a case where a patient may have to go to a CT guided biopsy or aspiration. But you know, in the broad sense, if you have a head versus body versus tail, I can, I can, we can typically get those lesions. Okay. Yeah. And so you'll be doing these procedures once that new center opens off of Longleaf. You'll be doing these procedures at that location. We're, we'll remain doing them at, at Baptist South for the time being. So, yeah, yeah, because um, you know the risk of pancreatitis is there. Um, and depending how much parenchyma we have to go through a pancreatic tissue, um, it's, it's there. So I'd rather do these in an environment like a hospital, mm -hmm. just for safety concerns. And this is just my ignorance. What's the general epidemiology of someone presenting with a pancreatic cyst? Like what age groups typically is it? I know right. it's obviously highly variable, but is right. there like a Older most patients, okay. 55 or above. And then, you know, each one of these lesions has their own characteristics. So there are lesions that can affect younger ladies in their 20s or 30s. And there's cysts like serous cyst adenomas that affect elderly um, patients, typically women. Um, but all elderly patients above the age of 55 typically will start developing cysts. And that similar age group of where the higher risk of pancreatic cancer also comes in at 55 or above. Um, but I think the prevalence overall, I think the data suggests maybe one to three percent of patients of the population will have an mm. incidentally found pancreatic cysts, which is a large number, despite it being mm -hmm. one to three percent. When you're talking three hundred million people, that's quite a bit. Right. I think we, I think we see that a decent amount in our right. practice. You know, no, we're right. scanning for lung cancer, we're right. scanning something else, and mm -hmm. can't tell you the number of times you, okay. you find a cyst. Yeah, pretty probably around that one to three percent right. sounds right. Yeah. Now what, do you, um, what about measuring uh, protein levels or kind of what, what are you sampling when you FNA yeah. uh, assist? Are yeah. you, are you sending off, you know, certain antigen levels right. and, and that sort of thing? Two more markers like the KRAS gene ass mutations. We're sending off CEA. CA199 will also be extended or used to evaluate for pancreatic cancer. Glucose, so sugars in the cyst themselves. So it's typically those five markers that we look at you know if the cea is high and we're more concerned about a mucinous cyst and mucinous cyst being more concerning for progression to malignancy mm -hmm. if the cea is low a little bit more reassuring okay. um and then we look for genetic mutations yeah. yeah i don't know about you danny but i've had cases where you know you have these people who have either like an ipmn mm -hmm. or some other kind of larger pancreatic lesion where you're following it radiographically and it's like growing, right. but you know, every time you try to sample it or get tissue, it seems, you know, you never really find malignancy. You're kind of, right. you know, sort of the, those are, those are ones I always struggle with is like right. what's the appropriate management. Cause at some point, obviously if it's a surgical procedure, it's right. not a light undertaking. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, I don't, do you can comment at all about no. your thought process of, you know, 
when do you feel like, okay, this person really needs right. removal versus, yeah. okay, I feel a little bit more comfortable yeah. watching them? Right. So it'll come down to the age and the comorbidities for the patient. So in your scenario, if this is a questionable lesion, we can't really get a true diagnosis. If the patient's 70, 80 years old, I think at that point we started having a discussion with the patient about the risks and the benefits of performing a surgery, especially something like a Whipple procedure. Um, but if it's a 20, 30, 40-year-old healthy individual, then I think I would go ahead and pursue surgical resection just because there is always this risk of progression. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to the patient's health, the patient's age, and the patient's willingness to take that risk after a thorough discussion of the actual risks and the complications of such a procedure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think never, never one right answer. It's never. It's very difficult. And I think that's where the multidisciplinary approach between oncology, radiation oncology, surgery, gastroenterology comes into play. Yeah. These difficult cases. Mm -hmm. I think we've all had cases where you have, you know, aspirations of, of what looks to be a cyst or, or even a suspected mass. And it either comes back inconclusive mm -hmm. or, or just atypical cells. Right. And then you have these multidisciplinary discussions. Right. Good old atypical cells. Yes. Maybe <laughs> again, it's it's biopsied and again right. shows the same thing. Yeah. And and I and I remember, you know, a number of these cases. It's just like, well, can the patient get through a Whipple? Can they handle a surgery? Right. And and you see both sides. You see a patient undergoing Whipple. You thought it might be a malignancy, and it turns out not to exactly. be. And of course, you know that it's explained to the patient beforehand. Oh, yes. It could be not a malignancy, but if it is. I mean, we need to get this out. And then vice versa. I've seen a case where atypical cells turned into stage three pancreatic right. cancer. So, right. you know, you, you want to hopefully cure the patient if they do have cancer, right. obviously. And is, that is such a tough scenario because that is not a light surgery, as we all know. Right. That is, right. that is, I think, one of the most morbid surgeries you could possibly get a esophagectomy being a second one. Um, but a whip right. it's no joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to it really. I feel like you'd have to find, like you said, the appropriate patient, minimal comorbidities, motivated, all right. that kind of stuff. Because you're saying we basically are doing a diagnostic wibble, right? Which is, right, on its face, pretty insane, right? Just thinking right. about this, even saying that, yeah, right? It's exactly. just, it's just it's scares just, us as physicians. Yeah. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, I can't believe I've been saying that. It's, Absolutely, it's a tough conversation to have. Yeah, you want to take yeah. out what to prove exactly what, <laughs> what organs you're yeah. taking these organs out. And you don't know what exactly I have. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. true though. There are times where you're you're just up against the wall, and that's yeah, really your yeah. only. Yeah, those are challenging. Those are very challenging. Absolutely. It seems like the sort of thing where you might be agreeable at age eighty to doing. If you're like, I'm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But at at age forty, right. you know, it's, you're like, eh, yeah, that's when you hope for it to be in the tail. A little, a little right. different. A little easier. A little pancreatic right. me. Exactly. A little bit. A little bit easier. Yeah. Although I'm not the surgeon, so I just presume. <laughs> we're saying easy when we're taking right exactly oh, i'm not the one doing it so of course it's <laughs> right, easy. Yeah. Right, right. yeah when i think about pancreatic cancer and i don't have a personal history of pancreatic or family history of pancreatic cancer but i've seen so many patients with it it's such a sad disease because they come at the end of their disease process i mean they present to the hospital with this abdominal pain or jaundice and by then it's 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 severe um so for the listeners, I guess, when you think of a pancreatic cancer, there are modifiable risk factors to hopefully decrease your likelihood of getting pancreatic cancer. And, you know, two that come to mind are um, smoking cessation. So stopping smoking, just smoking alone, tobacco use can increase your risk two times what our risk is um, as an average person, if you will. I'm saying average in quotes. Um, obesity can increase your risk by 20% of developing pancreatic cancer. But then 
even non-modifiable pancreatic uh, or non-modifiable risk factors that you can't change, um, you should still be aware of. So family history of uh, breast cancer with BRCA1 or 2 mutations, um, especially if you have one of those mutations in the setting of a family history of a pancreatic cancer, you are the person that should be screened. So at the age of 50, um, you should be getting an MRI EUS. Um, if you have a history of hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, so Lynch syndrome, you are the person that should be screened as well for pancreatic cancer. ATM gene mutations, um, what else comes to mind? You know, chronic pancreatitis, a, fam a familiar pancreatitis with PRSS1 mutations, those people should be surveyed or screened for pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so there are ways you can hopefully progress or prevent the progression of pancreatic cancer if you have a predisposition to it. But it's important to remember that the cure is surgery. That's the only cure for pancreatic cancer. So early right. detection really is the key to, um, I guess, longevity. Yeah. And going off of that, what, you know, we were talking about imaging for someone with a cyst in the pancreas, but patients who are at risk of pancreatic mm -hmm. cancer with either family history or have a genetic mutation, which, which puts them at risk. Right. What do you guide patients in terms of the best way to screen them? Is it EUS? Is it MRI? Is right. it both? You know, how do you yeah, it's, advise So them? according to Johns Hopkins has a prolonged study, the cancer of the pancreas screening study caps, and they just published their most recent data, I believe it was last year, but the way they recommend doing this for those patients that are at increased risk with non-modifiable risk factors, um, you actually do the MRCP and the EUS, and then you fluctuate between the two every year. So EUS one mm -hmm. year, MRI the following, followed by EUS. Um, yeah, so you, it's a long process. I mean, this is gonna be a lifelong process for 30 years for the patients, but their data is clear. And you know, they had, I think almost 1500 patients, 1460 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, if you compare the patients that actually had screening throughout their study, those patients that went on to progress to pancreatic cancer were diagnosed at stage one. 78% of those were diagnosed at stage one pancreatic cancer compared to the general population, which is much less than 20%, I'd imagine, with mm -hmm. stage one pancreatic cancer. So, and they had a longer uh, five-year um, survival, I think it was 78% compared to, if you will, the general person with pancreatic cancer who survival at five years, if they have a clean resection and no lymph nodes involvement, it's only 30%. And if they have any kind of uh, negative margins or lymph node involvement, it's less than 8%. So screening clearly shows to be beneficial um, to catch these cancers from progressing early. I think it's also, unfortunately, in the real world, you know, a lot of the risk factors you mentioned, there's a limitation in what patients know about their own family history and things. And I think that's something we constantly run into right. is, you know, do you have family history of cancer? Was it, and then if they, if they even know that, you know, how many people know Absolutely. the specifics of the genetics of it? Was this a BRCA mutated exactly. breast cancer? Mm -hmm. that, you know, right. so you have that working against you, unfortunately. Right. And then the other risk factors are, you know, things that in general, unfortunately, when people present in later stages, either folks who haven't seen doctors or they don't, you know, typically keep up with their healthcare. So they're, population that we should obviously be doing more to reach out to for screening, not just for pancreatic cancer, but other things. So it's sort of this, for the motivated patient who knows their history, it's obviously a great idea. It's just how can you mm -hmm. really get the people that are probably the most at risk is always the, the challenge and something that obviously we see it not just in pancreatic cancer, but other malignancies as well. 
we probably have the best chance to capture them because we're largely doing the genetic testing right. for patients. Exactly. And so, um, you know, I think referring them to you and, and kind of combining, you know, our surveillance or our recommendations on other types of cancer screenings based on whatever genetic mutation they have, in addition with you doing um, visits with them for EUS and MRCP, right. um, you know, do you feel like it's ubiquitous that all gastroenterologists will kind of adopt that EUS MRCP screening for the at-risk patient with right. genetic mutations or you know, depending on who I refer to, right. some may adopt that <laughs> exactly. data exactly. or not. You know? No, that's where I come fresh out of fellowship in some academic medicine. So right. this seems common knowledge, if you will, to me, yeah. because it's been ingrained in me for 11 years. But right. um, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's the case. I think, yeah, yeah, I don't think that's the yeah, case. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's it's nice hearing you say that because, you know, we we kind of, urge patients or I urge patients that are BRCA1 or 2 mutated to, you know, get part of the screening checklist. for pancreatic oh, really? cancer, yeah. you know, and, and we go over the NCCN, NCCN guidelines with them and show them, you know, these are the cancer screenings mm -hmm. you should have. Um, but I think it is a bit of a challenge to know, okay, if I refer you to this doctor, you know, what, what are they following in right. terms of the, the screening? So um, do you, um, so the EUS and the MRCP are done annually, but alternating. Alternating. Yeah. And do you have, I know you're just starting your practice, mm -hmm. but have you encountered maybe some of your attendings and fellowship, I mean, encountered issues with insurance not reimbursing for those studies? Right. You know, because that would be probably in private practice, one of the big questions, doctor, I don't want to get stuck with a right. multi-thousand dollar bill right. for this thing. You no, know? I completely agree. And exactly. Those... MRIs are not cheap, and the EUS is also not cheap. Um, mm -hmm. So I will say, like I mentioned, I, I, I trained in the Upper East Side. So despite me having a good catchment area and diverse patient population, most patients had very good insurance right. from the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, so we didn't experience that much. I will say, while I've been down here, I've already have a about two hands full of patients scheduled for EUSs, and I haven't had one rejection yet by insurance. And we run the patient's insurance prior to that, and not for our benefit, of course, it's for the patient not to be stuck with a bill, like you mentioned. Right. Um, and so far, those patients have not been denied. And I think, too, a lot of it, as unfortunately comes down to appropriate documentation and sort of right, yeah. why we're doing this, they have, you document they have this mutation or this, whatever that risk factor is where they fit in some, you know, standardized criteria. For screening, I feel like, at least what I've seen, it's been a little bit easier sometimes than on the treatment side where, you know, depending on the situation, you're fighting a little bit harder. But right. usually for screening, most insurance companies tend to be a little bit more liberal because obviously it's in an aggregate of the population in their best interest right. to have mm -hmm. Absolutely. people screened. Yeah. Right. yeah, it's more cost effective well, that way. Hopefully, hopefully that's the case in terms of getting things approved or... And so far, no denial. So that's great. And it's like you mentioned, as long as in my notes, I, I cite the CAP study, I cite uh, the guidelines, then typically they don't deny the procedure. Um, new technologies. So, you know, the field of interventional or diagnostic interventional EUS is always evolving. Right now, our needles are improving. They're always testing different forms of needles. Um, but in terms of technology, I think that's more going to be molecular more than anything else. So mutation, uh, genetic analysis of the fluid aspirated, um, 
I think that's where the forefront is, you know, obtaining the biopsy is one thing, but you guys are really, after that, it's, you guys really manage these patients and it's a multidisciplinary approach with surgeons, radiation, oncology, oncology, mm -hmm. GI. Um, my role is just kind of to help you guys with obtaining his diagnosis and you, know, you guys are real heroes here. So, no, you got to find it and you got to get it. Right. And that's, right. that's, yeah. you know, and you're certain, I mean, symptom wise too, right? You're palliating patients right. all the time with, you know, opening up closed stent or closed ducts and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's yeah. team effort. Yeah. It's all team effort. Yeah. Um, it's actually interesting. You mentioned the more in the DNA analysis, because you think of like cancer screenings, blood cancer screenings, looking for cell-free DNA and, you right. know, certain profiles that are supposed to be the, the risk factors for cancer development mm -hmm. or even diagnostic of a certain type of cancer. Um, you would think that for cysts, that would be the same thing right. or, in these cells, there are some early mutations that are developing, which should show that this is going to become a malignancy right. in the future. So I'm sure that they're looking at that. Oh, yes. Yes, they are. You know, the KRAS gene assays have been described well, and then yeah. the other tumor markers. But there is stuff on the forefront. Honestly, I'm not that familiar with it. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure there'll be tons of correlation studies, too, between sending the aspirate for next-gen sequencing, next-gen testing, and then right. also, you know, circulating tumor cells in the peripheral blood. Can mm -hmm. you, what's going to be the rate of matching or you not matching, or is there going to be discrepancies yeah. between yeah. the two? I think that's going to be a area for, ripe for research and, yeah. and exploration. And they're doing that for colon cancer. That is the focus right now, at least in GI. Yeah. Are those markers in the blood? Mm -hmm. yeah. Speaking of colon cancer, I guess what we'll get your opinion. I think I know where you're going to go with it. Uh, but I'll 45. Just, yeah, I'm, <laughs> ACP. I'm, I'm sure no one's asking this before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because I think now someone just didn't someone just announce today that they weren't going to update the, uh, the guidelines. Know, yeah, let's see. What, yeah, the ACP just came out. ACP, yeah, ACP, rejected it or whatever. Rejected it, and then of course AGA, ACG said otherwise. And right, you know, I understand that it's. As a, as a, for a system, it might not be the most cost-effective thing, but as an individual who's seen young people diagnosed with colon cancer in their 40s with kids, I can't be the person to keep telling young patients, sorry, you have metastatic colon cancer. I'd rather eat the cost as a healthcare system and start screening these patients. If we had better tests that were not as invasive or as a colonoscopy, that's great. I'm all for it. But mm -hmm. for now, that is still, I think, the best test that we can do. Well, obviously, we're in a very biased field ourselves where you right. know, I, I see 30-year-olds and 20-year-olds with right. colon and rectal cancer. I mean, it prompted me at outside, of, way outside of the guidelines to, to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's sort of, is that the right thing for the population who's, you know, may not have those experiences? Maybe, maybe not right. as a system level, to your point. Yes. financially probably not the most prudent thing to do but at the same time there's a reason the incidence average age of incidence keeps falling right. you know year over year so yeah. something mm -hmm. has we've talked about it on yeah previous episodes with other folks but you know something has clearly changed somehow where right. we're catching these things earlier or they're developing earlier and earlier yeah. so i think guidelines will slowly work their way down but of yeah. course there's going to be you know resistance appropriately because it's good to have obviously both viewpoints but I figured I'd know where you land on it, but yeah. I had, I, I'd have to, to go. I'd have yeah. to. No, I mean, it's just, I, you know, I, I was, my family 
obviously isn't they're not in medicine they always ask me these questions well what about the cost of these things i've spoken to my wife about this what about the cost of this screening everybody at 50 it's going to be hundreds of millions or tens of millions of dollars and i said you know to tell someone in their 40s you have metastatic colon cancer is the worst day is the worst thing i could possibly do that day that year one of the i will never forget those people that i tell that to especially those young patients and right honestly i i i still see their faces those young 30 and 40 year olds where i tell them i'm sorry this is colon cancer we're going to scan you and then you see metastatic colon cancer i have a guy now in the hospital 52 years old metastatic colon cancer to the liver just yeah yeah yeah, we've all seen those cases, unfortunately. Yeah, can't. You've heard them. You know, those keep you up. But I think the thing, you know, in terms of the cost, you know, when you look at from a sheer number standpoint, that with even these blood tests, which are not mainstream by any means doing cancer screenings, at $1,000 a pop. And, and there's going to be people that just opt for, I'm going to just pay $1,000 to do it. Um you know, and, and eventually there is going to come a time where insurance is going to pay for it. And it's going to be even more expensive than that. I think, you know, depending on how specific, sensitive and specific the tests are, you know, I think that's going to be a higher cost burden to the, to the medical community than a colonoscopy, which may not need to be repeated for 10 years, you know, and just because of the false positivity rate for those, those tests as well. Right. You know, if, even if half the population is getting 150 million patients, depending what the sensitivity specificity right. is, you get a false positive rate that's very high. The you're, healthcare system is going to eat that, adding, absorb that cost with a diagnostic colon. Adding a lot of cost to yeah. yeah. downstream costs. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Up front, it sounds great. 200 bucks for a test, but then it's like I always tell patients: every time we scan you, it's like opening Pandora's box. Yes, you can find something way. and means right. absolutely nothing but now you have to go down this diagnostic rabbit hole to figure yep. out what it is and the worry to the patient you know like, oh, what yeah. is this yep. even though we probably know it's nothing it's an incidentaloma as we say yep to the patient it's keeping them up the whole week while they're waiting for those results to come back yeah such a such a tough thing to balance on the population level mm-hmm. makes sense what doesn't make sense right. yeah people smarter than me can hopefully help answer those questions yeah well, thanks again for joining us on another episode of the Rick and Danny Show. We were so excited to have you here, Donovan. Thank you for it. telling us about yourself, telling us about your practice, and we wish you a lot of success here Thank in you. Jacksonville. Yeah, we'll certainly do our best to help help you build your practice and anything we can do. Thank you. Anything we can do, obviously, we're here for you. And um, I guess for folks listening who want to learn more sure. about screening and, and maybe want to, if there's something where you want to see Donovan Clinic, um, I guess probably just Google Borland Groover. And then look for your name. Yep. Um, and is there, you know, kind of go from there? Yeah, yep. absolutely. I'm available. So Borland Groover and just Donovan Westerveld. Um, and that's it. Great. I'll I'd love a, to I'll see I'll put you. a link in the okay. Great. Great. Well, thank you guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That was awesome. Yeah. Oh, much great having you. A little, little different than the normal. Much different yeah. than the clinic day. Yeah. 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 A little good, better. Good end to the week, too. Oh, yeah. yeah.